Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Yo, technology, what is it all about? I would posit it out there. I can't prove it that, in essence, you could have a single aging intervention in a human that would extend lifespan by five years. That wouldn't shock me. Hello and welcome to Danny in the Valley, your weekly dispatch from behind the scenes and inside the minds of the top people in tech. This week, we are talking about eternal life, or at least, you know, life extended, healthy life extended, health span, as they say. Of course, we're talking about longevity. As longtime listeners will know, I find this whole area fascinating and it is these past few years is, is really having a moment as just a ton of money and interest and smart people are rushing in to the field, all based on this idea that actually we can really move the needle when, you, when it comes to extending human life and extending healthy life. And on the program today, we have just such a person. He is Alex Colville. He is the co-founder of a new investment fund called age one and you may recall that on the podcast previously we've had laura deming she started something called the longevity fund years ago she is also involved here and alex has been working with her for years and they just launched this new fund to basically invest in a whole new generation of entrepreneurs who are trying to come up with basically the magic pill a pill you can take or many pills you can take that can significantly by years extend healthy life and this is all around this idea of this kind of emerging field of the biology of aging and really approaching aging itself as an affliction that can be treated as opposed to all of the things that come as you get older, like diabetes, heart disease, arthritis, etc., etc., etc. Anyhow, Alex is, like Laura, very young. <laughs> He's 30 years old, has a PhD in the biology of aging from Stanford, and they have raised $35 million to invest in a bunch of new companies, a bunch of startups working on what they hope will be some of the most promising and risky stuff in this field. So what you're about to hear is my conversation with Alex and just understanding how he got into this field, why he got into this field, 
and why he thinks, you know, we could live, you know, well into our hundreds. And that's not like a totally crazy thing, uh, at least in our lifetime. Anyhow, that is what you're about to hear. So I will now hand you over to my conversation with Alex Colville of Age One. Enjoy. Longevity is one of those things I'm just fascinated by. So we've had lots of folks on the pod, including your partner in this new endeavor, Laura Deming. We've had Eric Verdon from the Buck Institute, many, many other folks. So before we kind of dive in, what's the big idea? What is age one and why you guys are doing it? About five years ago, almost to the date five years ago, when Laura was was last on the pod, I believe, she kind of actually described an accelerator incubator program that got her really excited. Uh, it was kind of viewed in her mind as an experiment, something that she could kind of, again, reinvent herself, shake up what she was doing. And, yeah. and she really got the sense that there was a potential for kind of this new founder archetype. And so she did this accelerator program. It led to some really cool companies and things and ideas and humans being accelerated. Like you got to interview Celine on the podcast and we wanted to double down on that. And so that's what we're doing with H1, the fund. And how big is the fund? How much money do you have to throw at the problem? (laughs) So we had an initial closing for $35 million and we have now made three investments out of the fund. And are you obscenely young like Laura? <laughs> no, I uh, I am a year older than Laura. I am 30 years old. Uh, and right. yeah, Laura has been my mentor for the past seven years now. <laughs> it's a pretty funny setup, but it's a good lesson for anybody out there who thinks that they can't have a mentor who is younger than them. I am yeah. living proof that you can. <laughs> so yeah, so what is your background? Like, how do you come to this? Because I want to talk about this moment in aging and longevity science. But perhaps a good way to kind of talk about that is to understand how you come with the problem and what your background is and why you're doing this. Yeah. So the super high level background is in essence, curious kid turned scientist in academia, turned investor, turned someone who is just absolutely obsessed with building age one to be the coolest version it can be. Where did you grow up? Where are you from? Originally from Maine, uh, it's where I spent my entire childhood. Still, parents live there, go back to visit them all the time. And I think in Maine, you really like aging hits you in the face. Like you just you just see it everywhere. It's one of these states where the economy has definitely struggled in part to, mm. to not having a lot of the newer, exciting jobs that a lot of other states have. It's the oldest state by median age of the population oh, really? as a result. That's a fun fact. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, Florida, step aside. Uh, there's a new sheriff in town. So what is the median age in, in Maine? Oh, gosh, I, I want to say it's like 45 or 46 years old, somewhere, right. somewhere in that like 45 to 50 year range. It's so visceral, you know, anywhere you go in the state, you notice if you're not from there. If you're from there, it's, I mean, you still notice just because mm-hmm. it's like, you know, so much of the, the state's GDP is spent on healthcare as a result of it. So many of your friends are dealing with grandparents and parents going through these awful age-related chronic diseases like Alzheimer's and cancer and just the burden of like being a caregiver, you just feel it. Right. And then you came out here to the West Coast to Stanford. Was that for undergrad or for grad school? 
So that was for grad school. It was kind of the convergence of this whole like main thing, like realizing kind of more of like a social implications of aging. And then also simultaneously finding David Sinclair's work online uh, back in 2014. Yes, I was an undergrad at Northeastern and just totally went down the wormhole of everything that he had published on. And then subsequently everything that this nascent field of the biology of aging has, has published on since about the 1980s. Right. And I was just like, Oh my gosh, like this thing that I like have wanted ever since I was a little kid of like being able to have agency over how long I live and good health. Like, people do this? Like, this is actually something people get paid to work on. Yeah. And David Sinclair in particular, who I've been trying to get on the pod for a while, he's kind of quite a big figure in this field in that he's at Harvard. He's, you know, a real deal scientist. But he's also saying things that, you know, half the people are like, whoa, 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 whoa. Because he's talking about reversing aging. And kind of effectively almost eternal life where you're like, we can reverse the age of cells in a Petri dish, etc. So there's no reason why we can't just scale that up and do that for humans. I mean, that's very, very crude. But isn't that the, the rough idea? Yeah, that's kind of the, the premise of his book, Lifespan, the New York Times seller that he, that he released a year or two ago. That's really kind of centered around this information theory of aging. And in particular, something I think David talks about a lot in that book is looking at the epigenetics of the information theory of aging. And this notion that, in essence, his argument is that cells know how to be young, yet they just need epigenetic treatments to remember how to be young. It's a very, very, very compelling and interesting thesis. Uh, He's a visionary. This, in part, was what I worked on a little bit in my PhD, as we may get into and and can come back to. But... uh, They're very, very exciting, but really early areas of research in the aging field. Kind of as you're hinting at, reversing is like, Mm. you know, you're going to get a lot of heads turning when you say that. And I think the evidence is still pretty early for that. So you came out here back east and then you came out here for your PhD. What was your PhD in? Yeah, so studied genetics was what my PhD was in. But really, it was like all about the biology of aging. I mean, after that experience in David's lab, And I got to give the side tangent here. When I was in his lab, it was like just as his like celebrity was like starting to take Mm. off. I remember one of the first days in the lab, he like showed me his phone and was like, hey, do you want to see? I think it was like Beyonce or Taylor Swift's phone number or something like that. He was like, had just like been at the Time 100 most influential people gala right before that. And, And so it was like, you know, just at this kind of like peak moment in his own career where his own voice started to become ridiculously amplified to the extent that I get so many undergraduates and even high schoolers coming to me just being like, you know, I read David's book. This is so cool that this like might be possible. So I worked in his lab for about eight months at the end of my undergrad. The key part about that was just like a postdoc and a grad student in his lab that just were the best mentors I could ever ask for in terms of like putting me through the ropes. Like they made me like weigh water, <laughs> made me pipette water and weigh it and just, just be like, you know, they were that like thorough and rigorous with their training. And I'll never forget that. You know, every day I'd come in, they would assign me a couple papers each night to go home and read. And I'd come in the next day and they'd have to say like, all right, like, what did you make of it? Give me the analysis. And then they'd just immediately be like, you're wrong. You're wrong. You're wrong about this. You're wrong about that. Right. Go look at this other paper. Uh, and it was just like, oh my gosh, it was 
simultaneously very intimidating and also exactly what I was looking for in, in terms of the things that I needed to hear at that time. Cause I feel like I was so impressionable and like everything that you, you know, see in the headlines about science that you think might be possible that you just like don't see the limitations or you don't have that skeptical lens yet. So for me, that's why like working in David's lab was just so transformative was just like getting this skeptical lens from this postdoc and PhD in his lab. Yeah, because I mean, I think that's part of the thing with this idea, right, is that going back to Ponce de Leon, you know, like the Fountain of Youth, etc. And through to today, there's a lot of snake oil salesmen saying, well, if you do this, if you do this diet, or if you fast, or if you do whatever it may be, you're going to extend your life by 15, 20 years, whatever, you're going to live a healthy life until you drop dead at 110 or whatever. So there's a lot of promise. But it sounds like you have, we're given a sense of just how hard it is and the rigor required to actually develop something that truly moves the needle. Yeah, without a doubt. You know, there's always a new fad that I come across that is very amusing in terms of exactly this. You know, I don't know, mouth taping, you know, tape your mouth and you'll live longer, right? There's like so many different random things. I saw something in passing. I was like, (laughs) mouth taping? What? I'll be honest. I didn't. I saw a headline and I was like, I'm not, I can't read that. I can't read that. (laughs) But see, you you know, you have the sniff detector, right? And the. I mean, but most people are, you know, you don't innately have the sniff detector, like your taste of like whether to believe a headline or not, or believe a claim or not is something that's only honed by, you know, some jaded postdoc making you weigh water and read, you know, two papers each night and grill you on it. But you, you know, you, you have that. I'm just a cynical journalist is all. I was kind of reading up before we got on and before you have launched age one with Laura, you were investing through a family office, UNHW, I believe. Could you explain what that is and what you were doing? In essence, one of the first things I did when I started my PhD was reach out to Laura, cold emailed her like five, six times to different email addresses and never heard back was quite lucky that there was an alumni for my program, Francisco, who's now a partner at VC firm 8VC out in San Francisco. And he heard me talk about aging and was like, oh, wow, this guy's obsessed. Probably like, I don't know what geek, dweeb, nerd, some some mix of those about aging and immediately introduced me to, to Laura on the spot without me even asking. Met with her two days later. And then kind of from that point on for the rest of my PhD was always just obsessed with hanging out uh, with the longevity fund, helping to invite people to their community events, got to meet Celine, for example, on, on one of her first weekends ever in San Francisco, when she started working with Laura, got to see a lot of kind of the, this age one accelerator in its earliest days and kind of through a lot of those experiences really just kind of saw like these glimpses of magic of like how cool this space was becoming from more of the business size as opposed to like the academic basic research, which mm-hmm. I've been doing for most of my PhD and met a couple of individuals through some of Laura's community events that were ultra high net worths that were looking for help with investing and just understanding the science behind the space and knowing exactly, you know, what to trust, what not to trust. Right. And so, yeah, advised two family offices during my PhD and, and then later, in essence, ran a family office for a, for a different ultra high net worth individual, which his family office was called the Amaranth Foundation. And do we know who that is? Or can you say who any of these people are? Yeah. Uh, so that individual is James Fickle. 
So he's not a household name by any means, but he is an absolutely visionary investor and somebody who, in essence, has devoted a ton of time and resources over the past two years to transforming the aging landscape pretty silently. But he's an absolute visionary in in terms of being one of these like (laughs) insanely forward looking individuals and that he himself is very young, kind of early 30s, has kind of afforded him the ability to to think beyond, I think, the landscape that most investors and philanthropists look at. And how did he make so much money by his early 30s? Is he, is he a crypto guy or something? <laughs> Precisely. Right, right, right. How would you describe this moment we're in? Because I am both fascinated by this idea that there's a shift in the scientific community, in the Jero science community, which wasn't even a thing 20 years ago, around like age itself as the affliction one is seeking to treat and or reverse and or slow, as opposed to all the consequences of aging. But I'm just trying to kind of get a handle on where we are and actually like moving the ball forward because it feels like, you know, that mind shift was one thing, which was important. But now it's uh, there's a whole lot of hard work to actually like get something approved by the FDA for like an actual anti-aging magic pill, and just trying to understand kind of where we are on that journey, if, or if that's even the, indeed how we should be thinking about it. I mean, I think that's spot on in that we've had this like massive inflection point in attention to the field, eyeballs on the field money into the field. We've got these new big players over the past year and a half of Altos Labs with $3 billion from Jeff Bezos and Yuri Milner and a bunch of other top tier investors. And in the Bay, we also have New Limit, which was co-founded by some other famous names of Brian Armstrong and Blake Byers. And so, you know, there's this huge amount of attention and funding on the field right now. And those are hopefully (laughs) these leading indicators and prognostic indicators of what ends up being future approved therapies that we can actually use, right? It's like you're, you're spot on in that the gap is we've finally gotten this in, uh, you know increase of brilliant people working in the aging field. Mm-hmm. Like it suffered from a terrible reputation problem with the whole snake oil problem for over 40 years. And there's still plenty of that. <laughs> hasn't, hasn't gone away. Yeah. But the good news is that it's been joined by some of the smartest you know, minds on the planet working on this problem that have made this mental shift from whack-a-mole medicine of single-age related diseases to treating aging itself or focusing on aging interventions. And now it's just a question of like, yeah, exactly how fast we can get more shots on goal to bring some of these things into the clinic in humans. We still don't have an idea of we, we don't know for sure if anything affects mean or maximum lifespan in humans beyond, you know, we know exercise and dietary interventions yeah. affect mean lifespan in humans. Beyond that, we, we don't know in terms of what affects human aging. And that's the gap to, to fix. So where are we on that? Because I thought, because, you know, I was talking to Eric Verdon at the Buck Institute, and they have a lot of resources going at this problem in lots of different ways. And his take was like, you know, I think we will have an anti-aging pill in say the next decade. But he's also, you know, it was like very clear. He's like the best anti-aging medicine right now is like basically exercise and rest. I eat your vegetables and get a good night's sleep, basically. And, you know, the break of sweat or just at least go for a walk or whatever it may be. In other words, kind of the stuff we already knew. And so when we're talking about 
the magic pill or whatever you want to call it. Do you have a sense of how close that is? And if there's one or two or three kind of likely candidates that are in the offing, I don't know if that's Metformin or something else, but just trying to understand kind of in 2023, heading into 2024, where are we? Age one's goal is we really think companies that we can help catalyze and seed now could, in essence, get that intervention, that geroscience drug, that geroprotector intervention approved for aging in the next decade, uh, or at least some proxy of aging that the right. FDA does understand and, and kind of respect, whether that's multimorbidity with age. So in essence, the prevention of a bunch of different age-related diseases put into a composite endpoint, or whether that is some sort of a deficit accumulation index or like a proxy for health span. I think a decade is, is about right if we move really fast and mm. if we get lucky in kind of the first wave that waves that go through. I mean, the cool thing is like Laura has had on her website for probably four years now, a list of over, I think it's like 75 interventions that are FDA approved drugs or in clinical trials in humans that have evidence in mice that they and, and other rodents that they extend lifespan. Right. And so we've got all these things that are actually like in humans all the time. And I wouldn't be surprised if we find out a couple of years down the line that something people are already taking has a really impressive and important effect on on lifespan and health span. It's not going to be decades that otherwise, you know, we probably would have noticed by now. But, I, you know, I, I bet there's something out there that has an appreciable effect that we just have no idea right now. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's stamps.com, code PROGRAM. And do we have a sense of what the stakes are? Because I think that's the other thing that a lot of people get hung up on is like, say, for example, we cure cancer tomorrow. Cancer is gone. I think average lifespan goes up two and a half years or something like that, which is just kind of mind-boggling because we all know somebody who has cancer, somebody who has died from cancer and how horrible it is. And you're like, man, if we cured cancer, like this would be like such a game changer. And for obviously on an individual level, it would be. And even by extension to a degree for society, but it's like two and a half years feels like, really? Is that all? And so I imagine that if you're talking about a gerald protector, it would be less than that if it's really just kind of slowing down mechanisms of aging. But I don't know if you have a sense of kind of in terms of scales or, you know, what the effect would be, what, you know, what we should be thinking about. For looking at rodent data and in mice, typically the effect sizes we're looking at for geroprotectors are between five 
and 30% increases Mm -hmm. in lifespan. And if you extrapolate those sorts of numbers to humans, you're talking about a four-year up to, gosh, I don't even know, 30-year increase in, in human lifespan. It's rather dramatic. Now, of course, I don't think anybody expects us to see the exact same effect size translated from mice to humans. I don't think that's going to play out that way. I would posit it out there. I can't prove it that, in essence, you could have a single aging intervention in a human that would extend lifespan by five years. That wouldn't shock me. Does that not already exist in the form of statins, you know, blood pressure medicine or cholesterol medicine, you know, that already exists today that people are taking like Lipitor? That's a good question. I mean, when I'm talking about the five years, I'm talking in part maximum lifespan as well, which the statins, I don't believe have have shown any significant data in terms of increasing maximum lifespan in in rodents, but I could be wrong about that. So in essence, like I, I may be looking at a slightly different metric there, but no, I mean, I would argue that certainly does not exist today in the form right. of statins, which are not kind of affecting these other aspects of aging beyond cardiovascular disease. I think that you mentioned the cancer stat about your cancers, all forms of cancer today, you'd increase lifespan or average lifespan by two and a half to three years. I think for cardiovascular disease, that number is like four years or something, four or five years that you increase. And so the hope is if you could eventually, you know, stack multiple geroprotectors together onto each other, you're really getting these like much more traumatic effect sizes than what we would see with statins today. Nobody wants to live longer if life sucks just for longer, a longer period, right? It's about kind of living a healthy life longer. But if you can create something that say adds five years of healthy life, Given just the dynamics of society right now and like the social security problem, how much money are we spending on healthcare? How much money of that healthcare spend goes in just that last year of life? It's something like you probably know the stat, but it's something like a third or a half is just on that last year or 18 months or whatever of life when everything starts going wrong right before death. Do you guys think about what? this might mean for society if you're successful? Because it feels like that would be a kind of an earthquake societally if all of a sudden there was this pill that could be like, yeah, no, actually, we're all going to live at least five years longer of healthy life. What does that mean for retirement, for when you retire, how much money you need, who's paying for it, how much longer you can be productive, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I bet there are masochists out there that would like, they would choose the extra life in pain. Like, I, I don't know if you probably have met like ultra marathoners and stuff. Yeah, like yeah, yeah. those people exist. They, they do it. Like people would do the weird stuff. I, I could totally see someone choosing that. But for most people, no, no one wants that existence. No one wants like extra lifespan spent in a hospital bed, in poor health, in pain. Like these things are just, yeah, yeah that's, that's certainly not the goal of the field. And actually one of the things that I'm most excited about the aging field that I don't think a lot of people have realized is that once we make this regulatory change that Celine is already making at Loyal, as she talked about in that episode with you, which was so cool, that they made that big news back earlier this year in, in March where they got Nefson's FDA sign-off. FDA protocol concurrence on their pivotal trial design of kind of shifting the balance from a single age related disease to aging more broadly. Uh, And they did it, you know, in part using a canine frailty index and an animal health questionnaire. And I think this same shift is going to happen one way or another in humans, where I think that that first kind of aging label claim in humans, what that is going to look like, is it's going to be an endpoint that actually is health span. 
And that is what gets me so excited because it's really going to kind of end this debate to some extent in that to get an FDA approved drug to, to target health span, you're going to have to affect that endpoint, which is, you know, either going to be this multi-morbidity endpoint, maybe of like preventing a bunch of different age-related diseases or in essence, like maintaining intrinsic capacity or resilience of humans. And I think either way, it's like such a win. Like that's mm. the outcome we want. We don't want this lifespan with everybody in, in a hospital bed. And in terms of what that is going to do to society, say if all of a sudden tomorrow, everybody got an extra five healthy years. Yeah, You know, I picture like the Jetsons in my head because that's how excited about it I get. But in terms of more practical, like there was a cool analysis done by an economist in, in the UK, Andrew Scott, in collaboration with David Sinclair, where they looked at the economic impact of, in essence, an anti-aging or geroprotector drug. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the answer is trillions of dollars. The longevity dividend. The longevity dividend. Exactly. And I think there's going to be some cool new efforts that I can't speak too much about on that on that space, but that are in the works right now, that'll be really exciting to look at kind of more aspects of the economic impacts of a geo protector. So one, just the economic impact is going to be huge. Two, how many people have core memories with their great grandparents right now? Yeah. Um, a few who are very, very lucky, but I could only imagine what that would be like. Yeah, yeah. We've covered this on previous pods, but it probably bears repeating is this idea that the science, and you can correct me where I bungle this, but the science is targeting these, what they call these pathways of aging on a cellular, genetic, molecular level. I'm not sure the exact term, but, but the idea being that if you trace back the diseases of aging, which are diabetes, Alzheimer's, cardiovascular disease, osteoporosis, all of this stuff that they share some kind of biological misfiring, they all kind of start in the same place or they share some kind of pathways and that if you kind of go one layer or many layers beneath those diseases back to the kind of point of origin, that is how you get to this idea of like a pill that kind of deals with all of it and get to that extended health span. Is that roughly right? Yeah, it's, <laughs> this is a hot debate area right now, I would say, where there was this 2013 review paper in Cell called The Hallmarks of Aging, yeah. uh, which really like laid this state claim of like, you know, here are the X number of things that go wrong with aging and the, you know, the ways that you can intervene with aging. I think like my hot take is I think that has actually like set the field back pretty dramatically, oh. uh, which didn't happen in the cancer field. I think for the cancer field, it really catalyzed the field. But the aging field, I think, you know, it's the first paper that everybody reads now when they enter the field. And yeah. I think immediately just from day one, people have this very like reductionist mindset about what you need to do to work on to, to treat mm-hmm. aging or to intervene on aging where it's like, you know, there's these buckets and okay, like one of them is senescent cells. So I'm going to go and focus on cellular senescence. I think it's just like very reductionist versus like the probable reality of aging, which is like almost everything is going wrong in a cell, in a tissue, in an organism, and it's all interconnected. It's not this isolated system. You're really dealing with something where most things are probably going wrong. There's this interesting debate right now of like how many drivers of aging are, are, you know, associated with a given disease, how many are shared across many diseases. And then also this notion of maybe geroprotectors are mostly kind of just 
upregulating these like or or kind of tuning these organismal responses, stress responses that we have. And that's how you can affect so many different aspects of aging at the same time versus like directly targeting a damage that is a driver of aging, for example, if that makes sense. Right, right. That kind of theory of the case is not shared by all. In other words, the one I laid out. Yeah, it's, it's just up for more debate than I think it has been so far. Don't get me wrong, very seminal work. I think like it's been useful, but also very harmful in terms of like if that's your only source of learning about the aging field, which, you know, it has been the only kind of way that the field has been introduced to a lot of people. And then the other thing that anybody I talk to in this field is either on metformin or has been on metformin or whatever. And for those who don't know, metformin is a diabetes drug. It's been around for decades and decades. It is critically is off patent. So it's super cheap. And so a lot of people are taking it kind of off label because I think there was a meta-analysis of diabetics who were on metformin versus healthy people who were not. And the diabetics who were taking this drug actually had better outcomes than the quote-unquote healthy people who are not on it, i.e. there's something this drug is doing that is helping us live longer, healthier lives. So a lot of people are taking it off-label as like an early, you know, just in case this thing is the magic pill that already exists. And there's been this attempt to get this trial funded for years. They need 70 million bucks to fund this trial of metformin as like basically the first anti-aging drug and they can't get it funded partially because it would basically be an act of charity because no one can make money on metformin because it's already off patent. What is your view of metformin and do you have any sense of any movement there? I had heard they have Adam Newman of WeWork fame was going to fund half of that. So he's going to put up 35 million, but of course... Things went kind of sideways for Mr. Newman, although he still has like a billion dollars or something. So he still could do it. But anyway, but apparently they have found a a replacement for Newman to fund that trial or at least half of the trial. But they're still trying to raise the rest of the money. So I don't know if there's anything, you know, what's the scuttlebutt on the long discussed but still not even started metformin thing, which seems to be potentially low hanging fruit. That's just for whatever reason, they can't get off the ground. Scuttlebutt might be one of my favorite words it's a great word so uh but you know i'll be with near this week so i'll I'll definitely ask him for the latest i don't have many great updates beyond that beside the fact of yeah billionaires listening on this podcast of which i'm sure there are many Mm -hmm. should consider funding a trial like this i think i think something that excites me that near doesn't get as excited by because he just wants the practicality of getting it done which i understand this is his baby he's been fighting for this for a while what I want to see is like a multi-arm version of the Tame trial. And why Nier gets mad at me is because he's, he's like, you're telling me that the answer to how I raise this money is to tell people it's going to be more money right, <laughs> with right, a bigger right, trial. Right. And he's like, yeah, okay, yeah, fat, fat chance. But I actually kind of believe it in a sense in that, you know, if I was a funder, I want to see multiple shots on goal. You know, a part of the risk of the Tame trial is just that, it's this binary readout with this one intervention. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think like a very cool version of TAME, though maybe infeasible, would be this kind of multi-arm approach where we put a bunch of other different interventions to the test. We've got some cool promising lifespan data in mice with SGLT2 inhibitors 
for example, another class of diabetes drug. We've obviously got the excitement around rapamycin from all of its cool data in mice mm-hmm. and, you know, speculation about what it could do in, in humans. You know, there's a lot of cool things we could do with a multi-arm trial, but I'll stay quiet before Nier gets mad at me about that. I think the key thing to focus on is that having that trial done is going to be transformational, no matter what it looks like. I think having that playbook of, of here's how you do it, here's how you could potentially get a label claim for aging in humans, that's the important part. And, mm-hmm. and I think that our call to action for age one is the fact that like, I also think founders can do this right now with proprietary drugs. I think this playbook that team has already pioneered, they've already scoped out what the trial could look like. I think young founders can go and take the same playbook today. You just need to raise a lot of money to do it. But as we've seen in the aging field in the past two years, it's feasible to raise that amount of money. Why are you hopeful that we are going to, you know, in 10 years, we are going to have that first drug? I mean, you're a scientist, you know, this stuff pretty intimately. What is it that gives you that optimism that, you know what, we are going to have this kind of this moment where we're going to have this first anti-aging pill and it's going to make a real impact? I think the optimism comes in part from witnessing what Loyal has been able to accomplish in a relatively, actually, honestly, a very short amount of time. And just for those who don't remember that episode, Loyal is founded by Celine Haliwa. She is targeting aging in dogs, but the idea being prove it in dogs and then move it to humans. And as you say, they've had some some promising developments even since she's been on the pod uh, in this past year. Exactly. And and so I think they've kind of given us a hint of this willingness of the FDA to have these conversations and to like take aging a little bit more seriously in terms of an area for drug development. So that's in part where it comes from. And another part is just seeing the various interventions that we've had and the various companies move further along with more de-risking data. I think that part has gotten me really excited. And I I think the third is just the amount of talent into the space. My viewpoint on life and on the aging field is primarily focused on talent. I always think talent is the biggest bottleneck to most fields. And in the aging field, I'm very confident that the bottleneck is actually not the science per se, as much as it is (laughs) the talented individuals who can bring the right scientific perspectives Mm. to make the quote-unquote magic happen in the field. I think it's really a talent problem. And and that's in part why I've gotten a lot more optimistic about a 10-year timeline is because the talent problem is starting to change. So what happens next for age one? Yeah. So for age one, it's time to get to work. You know, we had this cool funding announcement. We've had our public launch. We've got our our fancy website out. We've got an absolutely insane team that I like pinch myself every single day where I wake up and, you know, I'm wake up to a billion Slack notifications and and signal messages from them. And I'm just like, holy cow, I can't believe this is like what I get to do on a day-to-day basis. So we've got all that in place. And now it's like, okay, how do we take some founders who we're already working with that have gotten us super excited, help them build the best version of themselves that they could possibly ever imagine in whatever that is, right? We're really in the game of like trying to, in essence, maximize individuals' outcomes. And hopefully that coincides with our bigger mission of accelerating the aging field as fast as we can. And then beyond that, we, we really want to spend a lot of time over the next year 
laying out our exact vision and roadmap for the field and then going out and willing it into existence. So kind of chasing down a couple of areas that we're most excited about, finding founders who are also passionate about those same things in those same areas, and then really instilling them with the support that they need to go make some some things happen that I think a lot of people don't are, aren't even aware could be happening on a scale of 10 years. And Adrian, is this, when you say it's kind of like an accelerator, does that mean that you have, you're housing people, you're kind of giving them lab space and like, what does that mean or beyond just like money and kind of support with their ideas with networking, et cetera? Yeah, so Laura originally piloted this program uh, back in 2018 that was an accelerator program that was backed in part by Mark Andreessen and Felice's Ventures. And that was really kind of modeled after this, like kind of more of like a three-month accelerator approach. Right, right, right. Having a demo day at the end of three months. We've gone away from that exact like accelerator model for Age One, the fund, where now we're kind of more in this like, more in a mode where we're bringing in EIRs, bringing in venture fellows, working with people informally in kind of more of an asynchronous fashion as opposed to batches of three right. months. So we're, we're experimenting with that. We may bring back the, the kind of accelerator model at some point, but three months was just a little bit too fast to get enough de-risking data for a biotechnology company in our experience in the aging field. How long do you think you're going to live? <laughs> Well, there's how there's there's the difference between think and hope. When I say think, I, you know, probably like 120. But uh, you know, hope is, would be I want that future of us having that agency over how long we live in good health. Like I really want us to like that would be just the penultimate. Like I would be unbelievably happy if we could get to this place where all of a sudden everybody has the choice of like when they age, how they age. And if they age, you know, kind of just like if they age, I'll say this. I was playing basketball last night. I'm 46. I wake up. I feel like, you know, I'm 86 when I wake up the next day after playing basketball. So if I could go back to like, you know, age 27 prime basketball years, that would be pretty awesome. But that would then get into a whole other set of philosophical questions, which is a whole nother podcast. But for you, assuming, you know good health, quote unquote, that like 120 is like a reasonable base case. Yeah, I I think that's like a reasonable base case for the pace that the field is moving right now, which is kind of like, and that would be to like shift us from this like, you know, average lifespan right now is about between 75 and 80 in humans right now. And our maximum has really kind of been shown to be about that 120 limit. And so that would be kind of like shifting us to more of like the max of what's been shown as possible. And I think like, you know, I'm 30 years old. I think doing that over the next 60, 70 years is like, I think that's like baseline what I'm expecting. Mm -hmm. But that said, I think there's another outcome that could happen if we get this influx of really, really smart, ambitious, talented people mm. and just people who are mission motivated to the field and who kind of make that switch from saying like, oh, okay, instead of just sitting on the sidelines and, you know, listening to other people talk about the field, I'm going to actually like make that leap. And I'm going to say, no, like this actually is a field that's ready for someone like me to help get it to its inflection point. I think we could see some crazy things happen. Like if you just go back, like what 50 years ago from today was like, right? Like 
gosh, like the human genome was sequenced yeah. in like the end of the 1990s and early 2000s, right? We didn't have like a human genome sequence. That was like 25 years ago. And so it's like just insane what happens on a 50-year timescale uh, or a 70-year timescale, right? Like we didn't have antibiotics almost, you know, it was like, or I guess that's, yeah, more of a, an 80-year timescale. But just like the point remains that over decades absolutely preposterous things are possible that I think every scientist at the time would have told you that like flight wasn't possible or that, uh, that, you know, like an organ transplant was just a silly idea and would, would fail. Right. Until all of a sudden that switches. 120 is the new 80. I like it. (laughs) As long as it's not like, you know, the last 20 years are like you're catheterized in a, in bed, just waiting to die. I mean, hooping that 120 sounds pretty good to me. And that is all the time we have. I want to thank Alex for taking the time to chat. I want to thank you all for listening, for the ratings, for the reviews, and for telling your friends and your neighbors and random people in the street about this podcast. I am not writing this week. I'm on vacation, which I'm so excited about. I have an annual trip with... A group of my closest friends from way, way, way back in the day uh, when we were all in short pants. So I will be traipsing through the woods and eating and drinking and being merry this week. But, you know, you still got the pod, so that's cool. And I'll be back next week writing uh, back in the paper and on the website. So in the meantime, I will be on Twitter. At least I'll be scrolling Twitter. I probably won't be tweeting, tweeting, I'll be honest. But anyhow, thank you as ever for listening. And we'll talk to you next week. Bye-bye.